0: Shoulder of Orion is brought to you by the generous support of our incredible patrons. To learn more about joining our Patreon, please visit www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Do you like our owl?
1: How many questions does it usually take to spot I don't get it, Tyrell. How many, many questions? 20, 30, cross-referenced. Fiery the angels fell. Deep thunder rolled around their shores, burning with the fires of Orng.
0: You and your models are happy, as the shit. Because you've never seen a miracle. You imagined it was you. Oh, you did. You did. We all wish it was us. That's why we believe. All the best memories are hers. Welcome to Shoal of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host. Patrick Green. How are you?
1: Good. I don't know why I'm saying my name so weird. It's getting worse. I, I don't know if you're noticing this every single time we start recording. I'm saying weirder and weirder things. No, I'm doing well tonight. You know, we uh, it's just the two of us again. We're uh, taking a, a little bit of a break. As our listeners know, we've had two very intense, very heavy episodes in a row, which I have to say were probably two of my favorite episodes mm-hmm. that we have ever done. Yes. Um, and so today we're going to kind of take a little bit of a breather, do a lighter lift episode and catch up on two very important things that are very, you know, related to the moment that we're recording this. One, of course, is that this is the four year anniversary of the release of Blade Runner 2049, so we're gonna talk about that. And then we're also going to take some time to go back through Black Lotus, what we know about it, what's been released since July and August, and you know the the, the little bit of dribs and drabs we've gotten from press. Realizing that we don't actually have a release date yet, somehow, <laughs> but that it is still, as far as we know, coming out in November. Um, and before we get into all this, we should say we are talking with Alcon. They're very responsive to us, and they are great. We are really hoping that we're going to get people associated with Black Lotus on the show. We were hoping for tonight, couldn't quite get it to work out, but we're really hoping, you know, Alcon is very much listening to us, they're here with us in fandom, they want to be more engaged, and um, that's something that we're really hoping to bring people soon. But uh, because we couldn't do it tonight, Jamie and I are going to be kind of just breaking some stuff down about what we know, what we hope, what we're hearing. Um, But before we do, we're going back to uh, 2017 early October. This is, uh, as, as we mentioned, we are recording this on the actual exact four year anniversary of the release of the film. And, uh, I got to say, it's crazy to think it's been four years already.
0: Yeah, it is crazy. I mean, especially because when I started this or we started this podcast, you had only been with perfect or perfect organism for about four or five months officially. Um, so I'm like, Hey Patrick, I'm about to start. An, and you're like, okay, are you sure? And we did it. And it was, I'll never forget that time. We talk about it at length. Um, It was a magical time for both of us, the way we were experiencing the film. Eventually we met our former co-host Dan that way. And it was just a really great time and seeing a film in the theater that we never expected to see with an experience. It was almost like a spiritual experience and it's changed fandom. It's changed how we view, The original film, it's changed everything. It's changed the genre of sci-fi in its own way. Since that movie's come out, we've seen movie after movie tipping their hat to Blade Runner 2049, whether that's the cinematography or just the set or whatever, lots of different things. Um, It's just redefined the genre again. And now, I mean, certainly we're here to talk about 2049 in its anniversary year. However, we're at the precipice of another Great film, hopefully by Denis Villeneuve, called Dune, which Patrick and I are going to go see together in a couple, in like less than two weeks.
1: When this episode airs, it will be days from you touching down on the East Coast, and uh, Jamie and I are seeing Dune multiple times over the few days that he's going to be going to be here, including going to New York City with Micah, another contributing host from the show, who I'm married to. Uh, and also our really great friend Drew, who is joining us on the Dune podcast that we're putting out the mini series.
0: Antonio, uh, as well as
1: Antonio, <laughs> <Lane. laughs> <laughs> people like Dave Gogol, a lot of a lot of friends. We're all going to meet up in New York and see it there. Um, but uh, yeah, actually a quick shout out briefly while we're talking about Dune is uh, if you're not already subscribed to our Patreon, you are missing out on a patron exclusive Dune mini series. ...that we are launching officially in a few days as of this recording, but by the time this episode goes out, the first episode will already be there. This is... Uh, it's Jamie, myself, again our friend Drew, and our great friend Reno, who has been on uh, a couple of things in the past, But so you might recognize him. He's also very much active in our social media groups, um, and the four of us are breaking down Dune from many different angles, including the original Herbert novel and some of the the other books in that franchise, the David Lynch film... Uh, the miniseries, the sci-fi series, the of course the Denny movie that's coming out, and uh, and part of why I'm mentioning this now, other than the fact that you just te- teed me up for it, is that if you remember Jamie back in the beginning when we started when you when you brought me on to on the PO and then we did Troll of Orion, we had all these conversations about you know should we like branch out and do other content or like have other people do you know do content as part of the family of shows that we have and. The first one I mentioned to you was Dune. Really? Because I was like, this is some... You don't remember this? I don't. Oh, yeah. And I and I specifically... But, but the reason I bring it up is because <laughs> I said, you know, we know so many, we have so many friends who are reeling really into Dune. It would be great to have them do like a show about it and we could like sponsor it. And you were like, nah, if there's a Dune show, I want to be a part of it. And that was the end of that because really? we already have too many podcasts. Yeah. You don't remember this? I don't. Yeah, but well, there's, so four, there's so many, years there's so many, now, spinning you know?
0: wheels in these shows that we do. There were stretched yeah. across like six shows between the two of us right now. Yeah. Um, but yeah,
1: well here we are, we are the Harlem Globetrotters <laughs> of you know keeping the balls in the air. But uh, but but here we are now with this new miniseries. So if you want to listen to it, it's good. Check out our Patreon. Go to bladerunnerpodcast.com dot com slash support. You know what to do. And for those of you who are already there, thank you and uh going back to the main meat of the show though yeah it's been 4 years since 2049 came out and its influence is felt everywhere not only of course in you know references in cinema but also in the, in the world of blade runner now being completely recontextualized because of the existence of this movie mm-hmm. right Anybody who goes on it does a Google image search or goes on Pinterest or something and types Blade Runner in you're going to see just as much if not more media from this movie that came out four years ago, as you will from this from the original film that came out almost 40 years ago. Uh, If you read the Blade Runner comics, which you should be and which we'll be having more episodes on shortly, you, you know, unmistakably see the presence of 2049 all over the place. Uh, If you're just a casual Blade Runner fan looking forward, you know, or or a Blade Runner fan looking forward to the RPG, which was just recently announced, right? You're seeing now this timeline in place. You're seeing the blackout be part of canon that people are talking about. You're seeing, uh, you know, more of these expanded themes that 2049 introduced, like the resistance movement with the, um, you know, uh, with the replicants on the replicant underground. You're seeing all these things coming about now in all these different forms in Blade Runner media and uh, and it's it's almost impossible to remember what it was like just 4 years ago when that stuff
0: didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I've seen people say, you know, Blade Runner was special because it was its own thing. Yes, there were some novels that came out and a couple of comics years ago, but now we have a glut of Blade Runner comics. Now we have Black Lotus coming out which we'll discuss shortly. And there's the danger of too much Blade Runner. And I, I, that's something that I've been thinking about, not to say that there has been too much Blade Runner, but I feel like they need to be careful about sullying the brand. They need to be careful about answering every question. Part of what makes Blade Runner so special is that it's it's on, it's on an island. The original film was on an island and then 2049 came out and that was on an island as well. And now it's being inundated by comics Um, By other things By Black Lotus notably And the more they do that The bigger risk they take In hurting it And I'm just nervous about it I'm not saying it's a bad thing at all I don't usually work Or I don't usually think in good or bad terms I, I don't think the world is that way But I think Blade Runner is one of those Things that it's It's on the edge of a cliff And it's perfect And it's secure on that cliff But it could be pushed off if you tried If you didn't know what you're doing You know so we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. I'm happy. I'm happy to be in this position where we're in. I'm happy that 2049 is in the world. I think it's amazing. It's a film. I mean, I'm. If I look on my wall right now, I have like some posters from Blade Runner, but most of them are stills of Rachel 2.0, K, 2049, and like K going to the clerk at Wallace's in 2049. So that's really, that's my worldview right now in terms of the films. 2049 is the film I think about the most and it's really amazing. So we'll see, we'll see where it goes. We will. I think I have to say,
1: I have a lot of confidence in the people at Alcon on this. Although I know we and many fans were more than a little concerned when we saw black Lotus initially, when it was first revealed at the panel and we saw some of the footage from it, uh, I I do get the sense from speaking with people like uh, Mr. Collins of course who's on our show back in uh, over the summer um speaking with others in the company that they are paying a really close attention to the timeline and to canon and to making sure that things don't interfere with other things and I think to to me a good example of they know what they're doing is the way that the comics have been handled Because although they take place, you know, contiguous to events that we see in the movies sometimes or shortly after or shortly before, um, they don't actually really impact those events at all. Mm -hmm. They're just sort of parts of the side scenery. Mm -hmm. They're the things happening in the windows outside what we see. And to me, that's great. Like you can tell as many stories as you want. In that context, because the, the, the stories that we don't want touched are the stories of Deckard, the stories of Rachel, the stories of Sapper, the story, these characters that get under our skin that we really care about, as long as they're safe and as long as their mystery is maintained, then I'm OK. That being said, though if we start getting a lot of answers to things where blade runner becomes harder sci-fi than it needs to be right we were talking on the dune show about hard and soft sci-fi blade runner is one of these things that kind of exists in this little in-between space but it's it's fundamentally soft i think Mm sci-fi because we're not being told how all these things function you know it's not about you know all of these like very concrete scientific principles governing you know interstellar travel or anything i think uh As long as they don't start trying to fill in a lot of those blanks, as long as they don't start trying to say, oh, Deckard is conclusively a replicant. And this is why we know that, because look at what he was subsiding on when he was, you know, as long as we don't start getting answers like that, I think Mm. we're okay. I, I do think it's an interesting place to be in, though, because it's an existential question for Blade Runner, where for 35 years of its existence, it was just that movie, like you're saying, right? And there were these novelizations that weren't really related to it. There was the computer game, which was a big hit in the late 90s. uh, And there were like a couple of comic books. But for the most part, it really was just that film and everything expanded outward from it. What's surprising to me is that in the years since 2049's release, we've seen 2049 be embraced just the same way as the original movie was, truly. Uh, we've heard, you know, it's, it's become something that there's tons of fan art There people come to conventions dressed as characters from 2049, just as they come dressed as characters from the original film. Um, it, it's, it's influence has been really embraced by people. And as you and I know, you know, with our alien podcast, for example, a lot of the time when new entries come out, especially new entries that open a lot of doors or close a lot of doors or take a lot of risks or don't take enough risks, people get really pissy about it for for a lot of valid reasons. People have a really hard time with that. And 2049 is is a movie that we can all agree doesn't really look like the original movie, doesn't quite sound like the original movie, and certainly has a different feel to the original movie, right? We've talked at length about how it's sparse, how it feels, you know, much more apocalyptic. It feels a lot lonelier. It's a different movie, and yet it's Basically universally embraced, and one other thing I want to say briefly is, because we have Dune coming out, people are talking about Denny Villeneuve, you know, left and right, and, and his name is coming up everywhere, which it hadn't for a while because he was basically just working on this movie for three years, you know. um But now that there's press, and now that there's all these preview audiences, and now that people in other markets around the world are getting to watch the movie, you know, Denny's name is coming up a lot again, and it's coming up differently than it used to. I remember when 2049 came out, there was excitement about him. You know, in audiences who were familiar with his work, especially because of Arrival, which had been a pretty recent big hit for him, but it wasn't this kind of like, you know, everybody knows who he is. And now, whenever people say Denis Villeneuve, when they're, you know, writing an article or something for a blog piece, it's always like the great director or like the acclaimed director or you know arguably the the best living director like people are using those superlatives with him now and they're using those superlatives make no mistake because of blade runner 2049 because blade runner 2049 although it wasn't very successful at the box office has was just instantly accepted as a classic and instantly accepted as basically an impossibility like a miracle like we've talked about many times and uh and i i think denny is just uh he's getting to see him be embraced like that has been really great for me. Yeah.
0: I mean, he made a film that has been called and is being called one of the greatest sci-fi films and sequels ever made. And it's, it's really true. Um, It's, it's an impossible sequel. It is a miracle, much like Sapper says in the film. It's, it's quite something really certainly to be alive during his, his rise. And he's a very, he's a filmmaker we'll never see again with his humility and his talent and we there are a lot of great filmmakers working today, like David Fincher, like Chris Nolan. I mean, I could go on. There's a lot of great auteurs who pump out regularly amazing films. I would say Denis' only peer in terms of the kind of films that they make and the quality and the how they t- relate to people and how people connect to them is David Fincher. He consistently makes incredible work that's grounded in reality that people can connect with, that people can relate to. And Denise very, is very similar. He minds more emotional territory, whereas Fincher is all about psychological territory. That's kind of the major differences between the two. They both deal with darkness. They both explore darkness, but very different ways. One brings the light to darkness. One brings a different light to darkness. This is what you could become, was what Fincher says. And Almost, It's almost like Denise says, this is what love could do. It's it's extraordinary. And I'm excited to be alive during this time. I'm excited to have the memories of 2049, the way that we do, the way we all experienced it that weekend when it came out. How personal. It was a magical, yeah, magical weekend. Yeah. How precious it was. Uh, I just, I, I, I went with my father the last time in IMAX, um, how I couldn't breathe when Rachel 2.0 walked out. Just the world, the immersion, the loneliness, everything. It was just sublime. And I'm glad to be here to celebrate its fourth year in the world.
1: And it's a movie that as the years have gone on has only proven itself to be more relevant. And I think that's something we've explored quite a bit on this show, obviously. But it's something where as I've rewatched it, through the years, I'm I'm continually struck at how much more appropriate it feels than ever before, and especially during COVID. Mm-hmm. this There's a reason we've talked about it so much during this last year and a half. It's a movie that feels so accurate to this moment that we're living through. And, you know, we didn't have that context, obviously, when we saw it for the first time. It was still speaking to us. It was speaking to the fractured world that we were living in. It was speaking to the, a lot of the fears of climate change that a lot of us were having. Um, it was speaking to a lot of the, uh, you know, the the hatred against immigrants and things that, you know, was all over the rhetoric at the time um, and continues to be. But now it has this different layer of meaning where the quietness, the stillness of it feels very aesthetically accurate mm-hmm. for this moment in time. And, of course, there's literal accuracies, right? Like people – like the shot of Kay walking into Las Vegas has become synonymous with, with fires, right? With fires along Northern California, especially a couple of years ago, or I think it was last year – or in Queensland, Australia, mm-hmm. these these dust storms that, that are happening and the fires that are happening and they're throwing silt into the air and it's refracting the sunlight that like that has become that that scene of Kay walking into Las Vegas has become instant shorthand. That's something that I also don't want us to forget about is that that is a truly iconic shot mm-hmm. and that is really hard to come by. Right, mm-hmm. there's a handful of those in you know a given ten year period of movies. Right, in Alien Three. Ripley being cornered by the alien up against the wall. That's an example of an iconic shot, right? Mm-hmm. There are sometimes in a movie, there are just moments that you see it and you're like, oh, that's going to live forever. The scene of Kay walking into the desert, which which I remember on that episode saying was my favorite scene, my favorite moment in the movie. And it's still, it still is. I think it's just a sublime moment of filmmaking. Everybody who saw that, it imprinted on them instantly as a visual moment, Right. And it has become the visual signature of that movie. And you know, our our great friend slash contributing host, Dr. Robin Bunts, just went to a preview screening of Dune, where it was a whole Denis Villeneuve night. And he's, I just was looking at his Instagram, and he's standing right outside the a poster that says like Denis Villeneuve, mm-hmm. and it has that shot mm-hmm. on it. Like that shot is just everywhere. And, uh, and it's a truly iconic moment. And, and again, we were alive and present for the birth of that moment. And we even, I mean, it's crazy to look back at our show and think like when we had Mark Mangini, the sound editor on, we got to live through that moment when they made it with him talking in real time about how, why they got rid of the music there and about why it sounds the way it sounds and, um, how that scene changed as they were watching it. And like to, to not only get to live through the births of iconic cinema but to be able to have an excuse and a platform to explore those moments has been really like one of the most amazing creative journeys that I've ever had
0: yeah I would agree um to to be immersed in that kind of high level art and I think Blade Runner might Blade Runner 2049 might not technically be hard sci-fi but I think intellectually it is intellectually it's the hardest sci-fi it's, it's working on a philosophical and intellectual way and emotional too. All of those things are happening in a way that a film like Alien is not, but Alien's working on a completely primordial way um, or say The Matrix, which also I think is working on a, in an intellectually high way or hard way or whatever, but it's not doing what Blade Runner's doing. It's not doesn't have that emotional component. Uh, it, it's fascinating. I remember being in the theater for that moment that, walking and just, it's like a wave that rushes over you. You can barely describe it. You can barely describe what it's doing. And not just that scene. I, yes, obviously that scene is iconic, but I remember the trailer where you see him walking through Wallace's, the Wallace corporation, mm-hmm. and he's walking down the stairs and he's with love. And to me instantly, that scene on the stairs was iconic. I've never seen anything yeah. like that before. It was a beautiful, the way the sun or the faux sun moved through the space and even, the wallace towers there's there's so much in 2049 that is iconic maybe not in the same way that shot is because we're dealing with the world of, a world these days affected by climate change much like Kay was in las vegas it's just a different a little bit of a different spin on it uh we're not there yet we might be who knows at some point but yeah it's it's something else it's hard to process it is. And it's
1: even things like Joy, who I know is, I is like, the... <laughs>
0: Jamie fucking hates her.
1: You know, it, uh, obviously, we've had about a thousand roundtables about her. and I'm sure we'll, we'll have more because that she brings up very interesting conversations. But um, even she feels more appropriate than ever, too, to me, because during COVID, a lot of people's only interactions with other humans were digital. If, if you didn't live with other people, you know, during quarantine periods, like a lot of people only had contact with these simulacra of each other and um you know there's there's a lot of moments like that in 2049 that i think going forward we're going to become continually more aware of why they're resonating with us Mm -hmm. and and i think not to boil it down to like covid being the only thing that has happened to us for the past almost two years but it it really i mean it's obliterated most other things because it's been so all-encompassing and specifically i think it has reframed 2049 for me quite Eloquently, so
0: we'll continue exploring it, obviously. But um, but, it, to it point, is, you know, but to your point, but to your point though, why 2049 is so relevant is in part yes because COVID has informed our isolation, which is a big theme in the film. But also, COVID was the first domino in a somewhat of a societal collapse. We're not like in a collapsed society right now, but the paradigm was fucking changing. I mean, things were collapsing systemic forms of racism. I mean, not that those things are all fixed and better. Obviously not, they probably won't ever be, but things, COVID was the one domino. It was a big domino where it was like, everyone was sent home and then we can't see each other. We can't be around each other. And then we see on our screen, someone be killed. And then we see the political ramifications of everything. And it's just this domino effect. So it was like living in societal collapse so we could relate to twenty forty nine even more. No matter where you fall on the political spectrum, things were happening and it was affecting us. And what felt for me comforting was Kay's world. It felt familiar. It felt like, oh, here I am trapped in my house, much like Kay is. So it was it was powerful. I mean it, it came out at the right time. And and it, it also allows us a mirror, which I think is a really important thing. And not everyone can look in the mirror, but everyone should. And 2049, at its best, is a mirror. Yeah. And again, it's it's an open-ended movie.
1: And I think that is part of why it feels so infinitely applicable to our world as it changes. And And that's really, as we've said many times, like the mark of great art, you know? Like, great art is always valid. It's always working. Um, and 2049 is a movie that even as the world continues to change and evolve will, will speak to us because it speaks to fundamental truths about the human condition mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't, you know, give us a lot of definitive answers to it. It mm-hmm. just puts it on display for us mm-hmm. to to look at and question. Um, I also just from a canon standpoint feel like it's just it's amazing that we didn't have Wallace before 2049. We didn't have the blackout before 2049. We didn't have a lot of these story beats that now feel so important. We didn't Mm -hmm. have Anna you know? We didn't have uh, any of that. And now it's like uh, thinking of Blade Runner without thinking of those elements feels like thinking about um, half of a story, you know? It really, truly does. And and it it also makes me feel more than ever a sense of complete ambivalence about another movie being made, right? I, I I think we all can assume that it will be Mm -hmm. for many reasons uh I, i think that we can assume that it won't be in the near future because of financial considerations and because of the fallout from the box office from 2049 it's just something that you know the company needs to be prepared for um but i think when it does happen it's going to be again an impossibility it's really going to and I, I mean david fincher i think is a great filmmaker don't get me wrong i, I love his work i couldn't imagine him doing a blade Runner. no film. i couldn't either you know i, I think I could, he could. I could not i think he could probably do a great one i i, I mean i'm saying that like he probably would be not the great kind of it but
0: not the kind that i think well i don't know his films resonate too but in in, in a harsh way his films are biting and in ways yeah. that we need films to be biting and i don't think right. blade runner needs to be biting blade runner has even the original it was not biting it was soft um when yeah. it needed to be
1: right it, it had sharp teeth but they didn't bite hard mm-hmm. you know it was a movie that that you noticed mm-hmm. but it, yeah it didn't draw blood uh i think uh I, I i i like i think christopher nolan would be a horrible choice for it I, I think there's a lot of a lot of people who are great directors who couldn't do what denny did with 2049 and i don't know who could but hey if it happens then uh i think we'll be I think to Denis see it, is the only know. one who could.
0: I think much like Ridley Scott, I, I don't think Denis well I don't think we're I, I I do not worry about Denis becoming who Ridley Scott is who is today. Um I think Ridley Scott in the eighties could make a, a Blade Runner sequel, but he couldn't do it today. He just is emotionally not there. Um he's too much of a yeah. Business we, he's in a hurry. Yeah, he, yeah he's, he's, he's he's you know he's got he's like six a, films a, a lined up horse. aside from the one he's
1: working on at the moment, yeah. you know. But yeah, And he's also like turning 90 soon. Yeah. So I well, think, 84. you know, <laughs> he's, he's getting there. I think, uh, I, I don't think Ridley Scott is going to do it. I, I think he could definitely, you know, executive produce it again, but yeah. we'll see, we'll see what happens. We'll you know, I, I just think, uh, I, I think as you said, you know, very well earlier, we're really lucky to be alive for this. You know, we're really lucky to be here and this moment where art like this is being made. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in 2049 is a movie that I am continually thankful for and continually, trying to reintroduce other people to and uh, reintroduce to myself every time we rewatch it i feel like i'm seeing it with new eyes again and this is a movie i've probably seen 50 times you know or 40 times at this point at least which i
0: need to call out our contributing host robin bunts having not seen the film since 2017 what the fuck robin (laughs) i know i couldn't (laughs) believe
1: that because he didn't want to see it not in a movie theater yeah that's crazy I did, there was a time, you know, we were just talking with Reno about this, you know, 2049 uh, did better in Canada where he is, at, at least in terms of, you know, proportions of, of tickets sold per theater mm-hmm. than it did in the United States. I But, it, you know, we were living in Boston at the time and I went 12 times in the movie theaters you to saw see it, it.
0: 12 times, Patrick? I saw it 12 times. Oh my God. God.
1: Yes, I did. Including I went alone a bunch of those times too. I was just like, fuck it. I'm there was a showing, it's still I mean, because it was playing for months. Yeah, it was. I remember the last time I saw it was February. It was crazy. It was so late, or maybe late January. And uh and and I, I remember the last time I saw it. The last time I saw it, I was alone, and it was in the basement at the Somerville Movie Theater. It was still playing <laughs> and it was almost sold out. I remember I got there during the trailers in the beginning. Because I was like, "Should I go? Should I not go?" And then like the kids were asleep, and Michael was like, "Yeah, you should just go, go one more time." I was like, "Fuck it, I'm going." And I get there, and I have to like find an open seat because even in late January or early February, there were no seats left. So I think it was definitely on a market per market basis, but I do know that in the greater Boston area, that movie was just playing to sold out crowds the entire time, and and every single one of those was a memorable experience for me. You yeah. know, I mean, going, I would just post, I would post that I was going on on Facebook. And you know, I would get a bunch of people who listen to the show or a bunch of friends being like, "Oh, fuck it, I'll go too. We just see each other at the show." And like, you know, it was an amazing experience to live through. Wow.
0: Well, here's to next year being the 40th anniversary of the original film and the fifth anniversary of 2049. Here's to them playing both in theaters again. Oh boy! Yeah. If they do, Patrick, I'm gonna fly out again and we're gonna go see both. Of them. Yeah, you are. I'll go to Los Angeles. <laughs> well, Maybe true. we'll do that. That's true. That'd be yeah, fun. It's
1: been a couple years now. That'd be fun. I do miss LA. You know. Uh, so let's uh, let's let's plan on that. And I guess with that being said,
0: we want to move to Black Lotus. Yes, we'll move on to Black Lotus. So we're coming back to you guys with a bit of an addendum to this larger episode that we recorded, and we realized the day after we recorded that they dropped a new Black Lotus trailer. There's a new key art, and there was a panel, and we are here to just discuss it briefly, just to to build out that episode a little bit so it doesn't sound like we're talking about something that's in the past because a lot was rolled out yesterday which was thursday which by the time you guys are hearing this is last week and so we just wanted to briefly talk about it uh mostly the trailer which is about two and a half minutes long which was rolled out after the panel at nyc comic-con last night on thursday night very interesting trailer really great mood great music uh, existing music that they used to really fill out this world and give it more of a blade runner feel. And they were successful at that.
1: Yeah. To, to clarify, we recorded a whole episode already that was going to be going during this part. And then the next day we found out about this panel. So we're like, Oh shit. So I am curious, Jamie, uh, you know, if your feelings on it have changed now that we're going back and re-recording, having seen what we saw last night or this morning, as we record this, I know my feelings are basically the same as they were, but I'm feeling so, it was, and what they were when we recorded this the first time was sort of cautious optimism, but having to convince myself to remain optimistic quite a bit. I'm going to say I'm, I'm a little more uh, okay with being optimistic at this point. I feel like it looks like something really interesting Uh, It looks like something that is going to capture some of the feel of Blade Runner, which I think is important, but I don't feel any more connected to the story. uh, And I don't feel any more sort of excited about it than I did. I just feel a little bit less like the ball is going to be dropped. But how do do you feel having seen what we saw at Comic-Con?
0: Well, it's a two-part question or a two-part answer. When I first saw the trailer, the new trailer, I was like, okay, I'm feeling a little bit more comfortable with this. It feels a little bit more in-world, in-universe, right for Blade Runner, because that's really key, is for them to get everything right. And it's not just looks, it's not just the setting, it's not just the music, it's everything. And it felt just more comfortable. I felt a little more comfortable with it. Not sure that it was... I mean, they still have the character renders, which have been a source of contention for the fans, the character renders of the show, they just don't look good. Um, and they still don't look good. But some of the settings and the the backdrops and the set pieces, the digital set pieces within the context of Black Lotus, I thought it was great. There's a scene in the trailer where she's in this van type thing and she's out in the desert. And it reminds me a little bit of vegas in 2049 it's got this van or whatever she's in this transport thing has like this digital backdoor or whatever i don't really know and i was like hey i really, really like that that's really some great that's some great look that's a great look and
1: it looks a lot like the truck that they're driving in blackout 2022 which is cool like the, the design yes. uh is very it feels like of a world with that stuff so yeah it looks a lot like said mead looks very much like blade runner yeah i, I yes. agree that stuck out to me too i like that a the lot. problem
0: is is you have this very poorly rendered character or this dated character sitting in that in that piece, in that set. And it just takes away from it. But again, the larger issue here is do I feel more comfortable? Yes. However, there is a panel that coincided with the release of this trailer. And if I would have just seen the trailer, I would have been like, okay, I'm feeling a little bit better. But then I watched the panel. But we can get into that. What about you? <laughs> the
1: panel. We will we will get into that momentarily. Uh, I'm definitely feeling better about it. I'm fe- so to put this in context. When we had previously recorded this, we were talking about the July release of the footage from it and the panel that accompanied that, and then we were talking about the Crunchyroll Expo that uh, where they launched the uh, the introduction for the show, which was, mm-hmm. which I, I think we both liked quite a lot. Mm-hmm. So this now is the third big sort of reveal that we're getting a footage. I was struck by the fact that we still like are specifically not seeing characters talking in this. And I really think that's because everybody reacted negatively to that when that initial footage was put out and they probably haven't had time to fix it. And so if you pay attention during the footage that they put out at New York Comic-Con, there's like, most of the dialogue is happening off screen mm-hmm. of, by people doing voiceover essentially. <laughs> They're not really showing any of the characters turning and speaking to the camera. Um, that is, it's a thing in anime. Obviously this is a dubbed English production that we're seeing. So, you know, it's a, an anime convention that the words aren't gonna quite line up with the mouths. And that's something that, you know, I think if, if it's done well, it's not even distracting. But but in this, it really was distracting the mm-hmm. first time. And I, and I can imagine over the span of 13 episodes, Gradually that becoming really a, a hang up for me, honestly. So mm-hmm. so if I can switch the audio over and just do subtitling, I'll probably end up doing that. Yeah. Um but I do think that the I think the yeah, the music works works really well in this case. I think that the atmosphere feels good. It feels again like um, you know, more of what we already know, but I guess that's fine and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I, I'm feeling just increasingly like the story isn't something that is going to like hook me and drag me in. And that might be okay. Cause I might not be like the target demographic for this. I'm not a huge anime person. I've never really cared about it very much outside of some specific, you know, things that have meant a lot to me. I'm, I'm not, I'm not somebody who's like sought out anime, you know, serializations in my lifetime very much. Uh, and I, uh, you know, it, it, that that's okay. Like this doesn't have to be for me. It can be for other parts of fandom. It can bring in new fans. It can be targeted at other people. Um, the panel though, if we want to kind of segue to that for a minute, mm-hmm. it I was struck by how bored I was. And I was really disappointed in that because I've been bored every other time I've heard them talk about it. And, um, you know, I've been kind of assuming it was my fault, kind of that like I'm just sort of zoning out and I need to be more like, you know, kind of like tuned in and I got to really, but I was really trying to pay attention to what they were talking about. And I was struck at... How, uh, you know, if we had put that out as a shoulder of Orion episode, I think people would have been like, what the hell happened to the show? It felt very much like a very kind of baseline conversation about very basic themes in Blade Runner that weren't treated in a very kind of dexterous way. It felt kind of, uh, like the things that they were fixating on, especially the futurist, who I thought was fixating on really kind of dumb things, Personally, personally, this is not, you know, he's a world famous guy. I'm sure he does amazing work, but I was sort of like the point of Blade Runner to me doesn't really revolve around bioengineered organisms and things like that. That's just not really particularly apropos to the world of Blade Runner or the world that we live in. Like Blade Runner, I think, takes that as like a philosophical jumping off point about, you know, what, what we build and what it says about us. And it just does a lot of other things with it. Um, you know, and and he was talking about some things that we actually brought up on the shows about replicant manufacturing and where they come from. We were talking about some of our ideas around that, you know, talking about how you can, you know, inject jellyfish um, DNA into fish and come up with, you know, glowing fish and things. Um, it, but doing it in a way that just felt very kind of like, this is Blade Runner 101 for people who don't know it very well, and that is not a bad thing in and of itself. It's just I think an indicator of the sort of audience that they're going for with this, which is which seems to be people who don't really aren't really kind of wrapped up in Blade Runner all the time, like like we are. Again, there's nothing wrong with that, but it fe- I, I felt kind of like uh, I was not really engaged in the conversation very much.
0: Yeah. Well, let me preface this. Uh, I love Alcon as a company. I think that they've made some really great decisions. I am rooting for them. They've We've had people on our show, as everyone knows, um, discussing the IP, plans, the future, the past, all sorts of things. I'm always rooting for things to succeed. I was rooting for Black Lotus to succeed before I saw one single frame, hoping, excited, knowing that the pedigree For the people involved were The Animatrix and Blade Runner Blackout. Unfortunately, none of the aesthetics of that is evident in what I've seen. However, my issue with the panel is I wasn't just bored. I was angry um, because I I felt like you're trying to get people excited about the show. And this is the third panel you've had with these set of people and their creators. So their minds are in different places. This is the wrong face. For Black Lotus, you need Jessica Henwick or someone else involved who can really engage your audience, your potential audience. Yes, I was also bored, but I'm like, this is what you're doing. These are the these are the, this is the decision that you're making for promotion for this show. These these three people, and it wasn't just that I was bored. They were trying to describe what Black Lotus was about, and they couldn't. Um, it started off, oh. Black Lotus is kind of a revenge story, but it's not really about revenge. And then later, yeah, it's it's a revenge story. And then Joseph Chu, who I have immense respect for, he was fumbling all over his words. He couldn't even describe anything. He couldn't, they couldn't, he was like, yeah, it's about a human story, but we kind of have to go beyond that. So what are you going beyond? They couldn't describe what they were, what they had made. And I was angry about that. I was, um, because I felt like, do better than this. Have a better have better people represent this show. Not that I think that um, the Joseph Chu and the two directors involved aren't good people. It's not that. They were they're just the wrong people to get people interested. And I could even tell with the moderator and the panel, she seemed a little bit like frustrated that she wasn't really hearing much from them. And that was a problem. I'm like, you're talking about this show that has 13 episodes it's going to be essentially almost 3 hours in length when it's all said and done and you guys can barely get a word out about what you actually made and that was frustrating to me and it was frustrating to me because i want the show to succeed even with my shortcomings with it with the issues with character design or renders i still want the show to succeed i want blade runner to be bigger than what it is i want people to be to, to enter into it and to experience what we experience as audience members, as people who have emotional stock in the movies, and they're just not doing it. They're not being successful with that. And the ball was dropped. The ball, and the ball was dropped with promotion. And then they, you know, they released that more key art. And if you look at the key art, you can see these white lines around the the spinner. You can see these white lines around L because they were just stuck in there. They're probably taken from something else and stuck in there. I'm like, this is cheap. And I don't like feeling like this about something that I love so much. You know me when I'm disappointed with something and I've just been disappointed with the run-up with this. And I turned that panel off. I was like, I'm I'm done. I'm done. And I know as we were talking, we were both watching and you're like, yeah, I'm trying to get through this. I don't know if I can, I think you did, but I just was, I don't like feeling this way about something I care so deeply about. And I left the panel. That panel ruined my experience of that new trailer. Honestly. Because if yeah, they don't know it, what the show is about, if they can't describe what the show is about, then the show won't either, you know?
1: Yeah, it's important to remember though that they're trying to really hedge their language around revealing too much. And and I do think that some of the, the not- being clear about what it was about was them trying not to reveal things. And there were a lot of, you know, this wasn't a live panel. Of course there was a translation going on. Mm -hmm. There were quite a lot of cuts and I'm sure that they probably went back and cut out some things that might've been too revealing for the plot. So I I think it's important to remember that some of it could be that, right? Some of it could be people haven't seen this yet. So we're trying to kind of protect the IP a little bit. And um, it's also worth remembering that the people who are involved with it are really good. They, they do, know what they're doing. I don't know if they know what they're doing for Blade Runner and necessarily, but they're, you know, very well respected in the field and especially in the field of, you know, animation. So they, they're, it's not that they're like not necessarily the right people for this, but the, I agree with you that they're not the right people to be representing
0: it on these panels. That's what I'm saying. Again. I'm not but saying this is the right, the right wrong people right. for the, the, the project at all. Right. They've just been thrown out there as the face of this. And this is an Alcon IP. Like where, where, where is Alcon in this? Why aren't, why aren't they like out front saying yeah. at this panel with them, guiding it more, uh, and the messaging—it's—it's it's really just the messaging. And to your point, I think it's most certainly they can't really get that far into it. They don't want to reveal too much. And also to another point that you made, maybe this is being positioned to the audience of Crunchyroll as a way into the IP. Yeah, um, I get it. But at the same time, like uh, one of the explanations they said, well, this is a story about a a woman with a, a sword. And I was like, "Is this really how you're, you're describing the show to me right now? This is a story about a woman with a sword who's on a revenge mission. Like, wh- what are we talking about here?" I, yeah, I was just wholly frustrated, as you all can hear in my voice and in my the way that I'm delivering everything. I'm just frustrated about this that it's not it's not a better rollout. And again, the project might be great. It might we might end the 13 episode series thinking, "Wow, that was really great." That might be true. But the, the roll up to it is just really disappointing.
1: Yeah, and they need more like heavy hitters in the Blade Runner world, I think, as ambassadors for this project. I, I really think that if you had people who, you know, everybody recognizes outside the world of anime attached to this, who are just saying, hey, you know, like as people who have been involved in Blade Runner, for, if you had Ridley Scott, for example, do a, you know, two minute blurb for this thing, or if you had, you know, Denny Villeneuve obviously do mm-hmm. two minute blurb. If you had just had like kind of a marquee level, non-anime crowd person to say like, hey, longtime fans of Blade Runner, this is something that I'm really excited about that I can't tell you more about than you've already heard, but I can't wait to talk about it. That kind of energy would go a long way, but the energy that we're getting is this very tired, almost like apologetic energy and maybe some of that's cultural. I don't know. Maybe some of it's the fact that we keep recording this in a bad time zone for the people in Japan who are, you know, on the calls. But they really do seem like tired
0: every time we talk to them about this stuff. I just and think there's uh, a different culture and it's different energy, honestly. And it also could, could think be this... cultural, too. Totally. Yeah.
1: But it, but it does there's a there's like a fatigue that I keep reading in these panels that I think it's like it's inescapable for me like there's there was a part and they kept it in the panel where one of the directors was fumbling he was trying to figure out what he was trying to say in in Japanese this was not a translation thing like in in Japanese he was saying what am I trying to say for like 35 seconds wow and then he started a sentence and then he stopped it and he's he was like no well I think I'm like you couldn't edit that out like Make this feel like exciting and like they know, I mean, if either of us were involved with this thing and we were on there for an interview, we would know exactly what we were talking about because we would be like living and breathing this. They are living and breathing it. I'm not saying they're not. I'm saying that they're not transmitting that energy to people. And I think it's really affecting the way fans are feeling about it. So... All I can say is that I very much still have high hopes for this. I'm feeling better with the footage that we've seen. I'm feeling like there's a lot of things going for it. And I feel like this would be, it would be great to have been wrong about some of my fears surrounding this, and honestly, we very well could be. This could be something that absolutely. Door and that absolutely. we watch. I mean, because the, the, like we said, the executive producer also did the, the animatrix, which is something that we love. We have people here who did Ghost in the Shell, which is a fucking masterpiece, which they talk about quite a bit in the well, panel. Well, I actually, think they talk. They're half.
0: talking about the new Ghost in the Shell for Netflix. They're not talking about the original. They don't think they had anything to do with the original. No. No it was the one for netflix that was not received very well um but you know i do want to make the point that i think and this is a, a point of discussion that you and i have had before i think alcon struggles with fan connection they struggle with how to really reach fans and connect with us in in ways that are are dynamic and no more is this evident with this promotion and i think that's kind of the issue it's the, the language, the marketing, the how are you reaching people? Like throwing the creators where there's a language barrier already—that's not the best marketing strategy. That's not how you get people drawn into what might be a very important step for the IP. And I hopefully Alcon is listening, and maybe with the next rollout or the next phase, we'll see something a little bit better. But I think, I think the show, even the footage, will be received better if the talking points are better, if the face of it is better, if they're like, okay, we've spoken to the directors and they have maybe someone, the PR person from Alcon saying, this is a show we've been working on. We have so-and-so and -and 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 so-and-so from this studio. This is what it's about. And they're taking charge of it as opposed to saying, hey guys, here you go. We're throwing you out there. Let us know how it goes. And that's what it kind of feels like.
1: Yeah. Yeah and it feels like it's not being treated as marquee level yeah. which i think is problematic mm-hmm. I, I think that this ne- blade runner has an a, a like almost an unparalleled track record right mm-hmm. you have two films that are just universally regarded as landmarks in science fiction you have um a, you know comic books a few comic book series that have won industry awards left and right and they're selling like hotcakes you have like most of the stuff that comes out attached to it has been like triple a grade very well received and this is another time where like I'm not saying that it's not going to be, but I am saying that this is that decision point where like, if they're going to put this out now, they have to really get behind it. And if they're not, I think they should wait. You know, we just got a date November 13th for the first time after having been teased about dates, possibly coming up for a very long time. Now we finally know as of this panel that it's the
0: 13th, like four um, weeks ish from now.
1: Yeah. Well, like five weeks, I guess when this air is probably about four weeks. And it, I'm feeling like um, as somebody who lived through the cyberpunk 2077 fiasco last year something that I, I had been looking forward to for like a lot of my adult life and then it came out and it was just like incredibly underdeveloped and and they had just rushed it to production and it was a laughing stock there's part of me that feels like if this is in that state which again I'm not saying it is but I am saying that it doesn't look great and it doesn't feel like Alcon's super confident about it then like I would I would personally urge them to like wait. On it a little bit and just take some time to fine tune things, get the animation to look right, make sure that it's like seated well within fandom, get like fans on board with it. Because if you look at YouTube comments, which again, I'm not suggesting anybody do that with anything because they're usually toxic, but if you go to like the footage that's been released of it and you look in YouTube, like it's just everybody doesn't like it. Like all of the highest upvoted comments are negative. Again, we live in an era where most things that are negative get a lot of upvotes and a lot of. You know, discussion. So mm-hmm. that sways things. But even outside of that, speaking personally, most of the things people have said to me about the series, including people who are not diehard Blade Runner fans, is it doesn't look good, and that's something that like really concerns me quite a bit. If you uh, it, you know if you go on Reddit, for example, the Blade Runner subreddit, which, which I love dearly, there, was, there were having memes about how bad it looks for like months now. Like it's become a, an ongoing joke that people have hashtags for because there's that many of them. So it's it's not in a great place, I don't think, right now. And I'm, I, I'm just saying that if you know they have a month left basically until it goes public, so in that month I think they have some work to do and I, and I think that they should come on this show for one thing and talk to us from like a hardcore fan perspective Absolutely. about this. And talk, you know, we know that they're doing the work with Canon. We know that they have people on staff who are going through the timeline really rigorously. We know that Alcon knows what they're doing and they're super capable and super, they're the right people to be stewarding this franchise. And that is something that we all agree on. But they are not like projecting that outward enough right now, I think. And it's making people nervous. I, I think- I think we need to get them on the show and we need to get them in the community and we need to like really hash this out with them.
0: And also there's a lot coming out in this last quarter of 2021, a whole hell of a lot coming out. A lot of great content, films, series, so much. You and I know this, uh, things that we've been looking forward to for a long time. So you, they need eyes on this. If it's going to be renewed, if it's going to be whatever, they need eyes on this. They need subscriptions. I mean. It's all about messaging, and the messaging, really. I think that's what we're talking about here. The messaging has fallen short, Um, and it's not just fallen short. It lacks the sheen and the expertise and the polish of the messaging when 2049 came out, where there was confidence. I just don't feel like there's confidence in this, and you can see it in the panels. You can see it in essentially the key art, which has been a version of the same thing. They all have that same glow that teal, red look. They're all the version of it. Like the color scheme of those, of the key art has all been the same thing. Like there couldn't be a more iconic shot that you guys couldn't release. Maybe they're saving it for something else. I don't really know, but it's just the messaging and it's the marketing. And as we know, marketing is key. That's when you get people on board. And I think at this point right now, people aren't going to be purchasing subscriptions to Crunchyroll for this show. They're like, nah, I'll download it somewhere. I'll wait till later, I'll wait till it's all out. And that's not where you wanna be uh, five weeks out from a, a launch. So
1: all of that said, we'll see. We will see, and hopefully it will be awesome. I but hope you so you know too. what? <laughs> I think we're, we we need to uh, hold them accountable for doing justice to this property because they've done it in the past yeah, and, the, and they should do it again, you yep. know? Absolutely. Treat it seriously. The last thing I'll say before we get off quick is like, you know, you mentioned the run up to 2049. You and I both were present for every minute of that. And we remember like the features that were in magazines. Mm-hmm. They had that, you know, the incredible spread that was in, um, uh, Oh God, what was it? What, what was that? What was the magazine article that was, like oh, 40, was um long? Wired. They were in, in Wired? Wired magazine, yes. Wired magazine with the black and photography yes. and stuff. And they had all of these amazing web spots and interviews. There's been Listen, nothing. That's, That's a multi, that's like, you know, tens of millions of dollars of advertising budget. Obviously that's not what's going into this, but they have enough to do more than what they have done. And even what they have done when they've had these panels, like, holy shit, Jamie, the audio today was so bad. I was was watching that. I was was like, none of them have microphones there. These are people who create art for a living, who clearly have access to technology to do a better job than this and they're all sitting there with these like shitty wireless connections they're going in and out you can't really hear them very well
0: and the um the the sub the subtitles are also late too like yeah they are missing for a while yeah 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 uh, i just um, yeah it
1: doesn't feel right it doesn't, it doesn't feel, feel like, right like put, put more money into this yeah. rollout yeah you know because anyway. the
0: worst thing you want to do is half-ass Blade Runner. That's the worst yes. thing you want to do. And thankfully, yeah. this is not a part of any mainline Rachel Deckard K story. This is something separate within that world. So we'll see. But yeah,
1: but I mean, there's Wallace. There's a lot of things that people are going to recognize True. in this. True. Like this, this does touch the main continuity. It's just a slightly different timeline. Yeah, yeah. So like this, this is that same sandbox that Rachel and Deckard are in. This, this is the sandbox. And they're alive at so, this like, point. Yeah. Yeah. So don't. Fuck it up, yep. right? Yep. No pressure. No
0: pressure. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Uh, again, we just needed to come back and make sure that we are up to cur- up current on what's been released. We'll see what happens. We're rooting see. for it. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.